Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Josh Spodek, and I'm here with Simon Michel. Michel, uh, Simon, how are you doing? Pretty good. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. You are requested from a couple guests from before. And so I'll give a brief description of you from your bio and a few things of why I invited you here. And then I really want to get into what into your research. So uh, Simon Michaud is a, an associate professor of geometallurgy at the Ge- Geological Survey of Finland. Now, everyone will hear you sounding Australian. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm sure you get that a lot. I do. He has a PhD in mining engineering. Uh, your long-term work is on the development and transformation toward a circular economy. Now, I mentioned the Geological Survey of Finland, so I went to their page. They produce impartial and objective research data and services in support of decision-making in industry, academia, and wider, wider society to accelerate the transition to a sustainable, carbon-neutral world. It feels like we could use more of these organizations, and it does seem like the sort of thing like Finland would have and the United States would not. <laughs> uh, so the the previous guests that led listeners to, re- to ask for you. One is Mark Jacobson from Stanford. Mm-hmm. And he, I will, people can go listen to that episode to, so, so I don't oversimplify, but he, one of his big messages is a 100% clean, renewable future is maybe challenging, but possible. The other is Mark Mills, who I've had on a, a few times. And he says he, a lot of what got me into his research was looking into the minerals and the mining necessary for, see, I don't like to use the terms clean, green, or renewable for things that I don't consider clean, green, or renewable, but, you know, wind and solar. Mm. And he finds that that's not possible, or he finds that it's much more expensive, not just in cash, but in, in materials than people think. But then he also curiously says, but we can't, humans, once we've acclimatized to a certain level of energy, we can't go down. So I think he just kind of assumes that fossil fuels will work out. And now you, I've watched a bunch of your stuff. And, and okay, so the listeners, I recommend, I have no problem if you pause this right now before Simon's really gotten to talk and go to the GTK site. I'll put the links in the, in the write-up and watch. There's a 15-minute video of describing a research paper that I think you're going to probably describe to me now. And also some of the answers in another video, the answers to the major questions. Yep. That's all the framework to what brought me to you. And what I hope I, I man, just listen to a whole bunch of your, you sound, you sound very interested in sharing your stuff. You, you've been on a lot of podcasts. Yes. So the, but the reason for that is my work's uncovered a series of blind spots. And those blind spots will really hamper our ability to do something useful. But if we as a society understood these challenges in their true form, or at least in a better form, then we've got a better chance of responding to actually do something useful. And at the moment, we are not. So I wish to share my work, and uh, it's getting to the point where you know people have heard it too many times, at which point maybe we need to get to the next step. But to share the work, and if we can all understand the challenges presented, once we understand them, my work's actually obsolete. And we move on to the next step, as in what do we do? And so, yes, I like to share it because then we can all get it. Some of the blind spots. So I, on your page, on your personal page, you, you put in a list of, of what, what the world looks like to you, which seems to me like very common sense stuff that I think to a lot of people, it's like, oh, I never thought of that. that. So the first couple of ones said, I see things as a system and examine them accordingly. 
Well, I guess not many people really get the difference between a systems perspective and a non-systems perspective. Mm -hmm. The next one says all wildlife systems are in steep decline. The bottoms of the food chain on both uh, food chains, both on land and in, in the ocean, are undergoing high depopulation of species, far in excess of background rates. The planetary environment is deteriorating. If this system passes through certain tipping points, it will seek a new equilibrium, resulting in a planet-wide bioshift. Human systems may struggle to function, which is pretty serious stuff. And yet, it's just what's on the front page. Of the, it, it seems like it's front page news every day. Mm -hmm. And uh, the current system is highly dependent on fossil fuels, oil, uh, gas, and coal. And to transition away from them would take something like 20 years if done in organized fashion without disruption. And so these seem, seem they seem pretty obvious, and yet I think most people are like, "Don't tell me that. I'm sure someone will fix it if there's any problems." I think those are these are the types of blind spots you're talking about, right? Some of them, yes. Like another one is our reliance on minerals. Uh, like like um, when you buy a computer down at the shopping mall, right? That's actually made from metals, which mostly came from the ground. And it's like the oxygen we breathe is is so ubiquitous. We need it all the time, but we don't even see it anymore. So we don't we are we are completely unaware of our dependency on energy and minerals, um, and and we're also unaware that we have signed over our ability to do physical work to others. A hundred years ago, every continent had essentially the same industrial capability. Everyone was more or less self sufficient. Now we've got a situation where everything's concentrated into one place, usually China, but not always, but, but that region of the world. And we've lost the capability. Uh, you know, like um, Europe, for example, doesn't do any mining at all. Or if it is, it's a very, very small amount, far less than what it actually needs. And, and so it buys things off the market. right? And, and so everything has become an economic uh, uh, enterprise. We, we have misunderstood the commodities industry. So we as, we as a species, as a society, have actually, without realizing it, drifted into a state where we don't see certain things that we absolutely depend upon. And there's a whole series of them. How did you get into mining engineering in the first place? And how did you, from there, get into sustainability? Because what it feels like what you're saying is common sense. It feels like someone... And yet, not many people have gone in this direction and gotten to the depth that you have and to the level of precision that you have. And are you are you very passionate about? It? Are you driven? In a, is there something driving you, or is it just like, well, we're all going to die otherwise? No. Someone's really got to work on this. Uh, I suppose a little bit of everything there. Look, um, when I was in high school, in secondary school, I used to polish rocks in a in a hobby called lapidry, and. Um, so that was my introduction to the minerals world. And when I actually went on to university, I did a physics degree. And I picked a minor in geology, but I liked the geology so much, I upgraded it to a double major. So physics and geology. And what struck me at the time was physics was great, but all the subjects in it seemed to start nowhere and an end nowhere in a very abstract way, whereas geology was more grounded in reality and there wasn't employment at the end of a geology degree where, where physics not so much. This was in, you know, in, in the mid-90s. Mid so I got a job in a mining research group called the Julius Crutchnet Mineral Research Centre in the University of Queensland in Australia. 
And so for, and I didn't look back. So for 18 years, I worked in research and development and I went on and did a PhD in blasting in mining engineering. During that time, I came in contact with every major company in the mining industry in terms of research and development. And I found, uh, I, I started to pick up on a series of patterns within the mining industry itself. And one of them was they are absolutely dependent on fossil fuels to do mining. But we had concepts like peak oil, and I was, this was back in the year 2000. The, at the time, industry didn't want to hear about that. The business model was all about money and all about growth, and, and things had to expand. And no one wanted to hear, for example, things were expanding, out of, uh, that the mining industry might become vulnerable and susceptible uh, to a depletion of a resource it needed to survive. And at the time, it was oil, but it later became oil and gas. And so over time, I was actually picking up a series of technical problems that the mining industry was having. One was grade was decreasing. We'd mined out all the good deposits and high-grade stuff, and now we're looking at the low-grade, hard-to-work deposits. And the other was our grind size, like how fine we had to grind the rock was decreasing because you know the minerals were fine. What this meant was energy consumption was increasing. So while energy consumption was um, increasing, uh, costs were going up. There was um, our ability to deliver uh, to the market and keep on expanding was getting harder and harder to do, especially in the gold industry. And so uh, I came up with this idea that there's going to come a point when the mining industry is going to transition into a new business model where, and, and until we understand that, things are going to get more and more difficult. The corporate leadership in the mining industry at the time was very conventional. Mining happens to a formula. And when there is trouble economically, it's very simple. We just fire everyone and wait till the market comes back. And that's how they solved their problems. What they didn't seem to realize is there was a macro scale pattern unfolding under them that the mining industry would have to evolve into something else, whether they liked it or not. So the mining industry crashed in 2012, 2013. And then um, I was a um, I was a laborer in uh, a furniture removalist for a year, and I worked on an organic farm. And it was a very challenging year, but I must say it was one of the more pleasant years I've I've actually worked with because it was uh, um, I worked with some very good people who taught me a lot. Uh, so then I decided to leave mining and Australia behind because these patents were saying, look, mining is going to get hard. It's just going to get harder and harder and harder, and it's just going to become a frustrating business to be part of. So I came to Belgium in Europe to join the University of Liège to learn industrial recycling. And when I came here, I came across the circular economy for the first time in an organized form. Uh, now, before now, I've been writing lots of articles in the sustainability of mining and, and, and how the mining industry was approaching a point where it's going to have to decline in production. Uh, it won't be able to expand in the same way. Uh, so I got to Europe, and I'm sitting in these meetings in Brussels as a representative of the university uh, uh, in, in the audience uh, in the European Central Commission building and listening to these very, very polished presentations about what the circular economy is and, and, and what they were talking about for the future. Now, I used to work in the private sector for it in, in the industry as well about feasibility studies. Uh, just for a short time, but I, I got a feel for how the private sector actually works. And what struck me when I was listening to the people in, in Europe is that this is the way the future is going to be. 
was they were completely untethered from reality. There was no macro-scale plan for industrial reform. It just didn't exist. You know, you know th- 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 there was just no... Uh, uh, it, it was just like a series of platitudes. We will, you know, like, the future is we will be 80% solar. Uh, we will be 100% electric by 2030. And they would often reference each other. And so what I did was I downloaded some past reports. So this was, what, 2015. So, and I've been doing the same since then. Go back to 2008 when the circular economy was first proposed. And I looked at what, what did they say back then? And what I found, and this, 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 uh, this actually sort of demoralized me a bit. What they actually said hadn't changed. They used more sophisticated charts and graphics, but what they said in abstract terms was the same. <laughs> so they hadn't really sort of progressed much. And then it occurred to me that there was a, uh, back to these blind spots. Europe had a blind spot in where its minerals comes from. Now, in Australia, we do a lot of mining, but there is no smelter on Australian soil. The concentrate is moved off to usually China, but you know, often Southeast Asia somewhere. And the smelter uh, turns the concentrate into metal. So Australia is a- actually a giant quarry. We're not, we're not a mine. We sell rocks. We don't sell metals. Uh, so, all right. When, when you get to Europe, though, when they start talking about, you know, there's going to be a series of critical materials, the first gobsmacking moment was when I realized their critical raw materials map that they used saying, this is what would be critical, was using data for the previous four years. So it was looking into the past. It wasn't even looking into the future. So that's what's critical now while supported by fossil fuels. Take away fossil fuels. What does that look like? The second thing that worried me was we were not allowed to discuss energy. Raw materials at the time, they're all metals, things like lithium and cobalt and nickel and rare earths. We're allowed to talk about those. But when the situation was, so well, what about oil, gas and coal and uranium? And I was taken aside and said, look, I'm, look, I'm sorry, but we, you're not allowed to talk about that. You know, others, they, the actual statement at the time was others are looking at this. We don't need to do this. Please, you know, you know, you know, if it got to the point where if anything was actually mentioned in a meeting, they said, look, we'd have to write that out of the minutes because they were so adamant not to discuss certain things. And that really worried. And what the reason they said that is, look, the European Commission has laid down the law that we're to use a certain methodology and that methodology has to match what's been done in the past. And they want to be very strict on people uh, not changing it because whatever new work happens will not be able to be directly compared. And that's okay. I understand why they might say that, but but the outcome is we weren't allowed to talk about energy. And so, uh, yeah. So, but, do you mind if I? I yeah. want to interject for a second here. Uh, I don't want to, but I want to get some context to to refresh my memory. You're now at Liège as an academic. Nope. 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 Okay. You're. Uh, this this is when I was in Liège as an academic working. I'm now currently yeah. in Finland in the geological survey. I mean, the, the story that you were telling just now is, okay, that's, is what I meant to ask about. Yeah, okay. That's when you were at, at Liège? That's correct. And, and so you're participating as an academic and you're genuinely interested in circular economy. Yep. But the people, the other people in the meetings are government officials, representatives? Oh, the other academics. What they did was they actually brought 
everyone together, academia, industry captains, but also government officials, and they put them all into one room. And so we will now work on this together. It was a level of cooperation I'd never seen before. Mm-hmm. And so there were representatives from every part of society in the same room, and you saw them regularly, and you were encouraged to talk to them to get to know them. And so that part was great. Okay, so that sounds great. Yeah. And and then and the government people are saying, okay, that's all great, but yeah. here's some restrictions. We can't talk about X, Y, and Z. And if you do, we're going to go back and, and yeah. strike it from the record. And so you thought, well, this is undermining the whole point. So I, I did, but the way they described it is that, look, you know, we've had difficulty in the past of staying on mission. They called it mission creep. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, that's all good and well, but you've missed the fundamental point. And the, the reason they did this was they said that the European Commission could recommend to its member states what to do with minerals, but it wasn't allowed to tell those member states what to do with energy, and that was their affair. And, and, and that was the logic. So this is this is all building up of why you're like uh, with something driving you. It's like this huge – it's not like a blind spot. If someone's thinking a blind spot, it's like that, that thing where you look at the dot and you cover one eye, yeah. and it's like it's hard to find – all right, it's hard to find, but it's like a little dot. Yeah. Whereas this is not like a little dot. It's it's uh it's what our what our modern world depends on in multiple ways. Yeah. It's it's like everyone was watching TV without realizing that it was an entire world outside if they turned off the TV. Right, right. There were there were everyone was so focused and they were in a hall of mirrors where they referenced each other. And there were a whole series of things that when I talked to the people around me, they would not understand what I was saying. And they did not, they didn't understand what they were saying, but they were reluctant to try and understand. It was like everyone had to leave Plato's cave. You know, the legend of Plato's cave, right? We're all in the cave. We're looking at the shadows on the wall without realizing there are other things out there. So there was no one malicious. There was no one like, like doing terrible things. It was just, this is how people thought. And one of the shocking things was when I suggested that, look, if China is actually manufacturing most of this stuff, why are we not talking about that openly? Like, what's China doing? And they said, oh, we wish we knew. Uh, but but it, was ne- it never really sort of came up as a topic to go on research. Like, what was the footprint of China? And so they would talk about things in a fairly superficial way, but there was no mapping of industry. or, or They were mapping material flows in Europe very, very well. And, they were, and the problem... The reason the circular economy was proposed in the first place was when they realized that the materials brought into Europe, they were highly dependent on stuff being brought in, and it was coming mainly from China. So they understood the long-term problem, but it was like they didn't want to say it out loud. And so the feeling I was starting to get was I'd actually picked up on a whole series of information coming from the Australian mining industry it was apparent that the Europeans didn't understand mining or the commodities industry in general. They actually, um, that they said, we don't do mining, we buy products off the market. So this is an economic exercise. And even though they were talking about raw material scarcity, they were still treating it like it's a purely economic problem. They had fundamentally misunderstood the commodities industry and they believed it was just a money thing. And so that, you know, there was, there was serious, things missing in their dialogue and in their lexicon. And when you ask them basic questions, you've got this glassy-eyed, stunned mullet look. They were very, very good at talking within the window they're used to talking, but not so good when you actually throw them something from outside their window. 
And what? So partly, yeah. Sorry. Oh, I've been. I'd asked you how you got interested in this, and now I don't know how to put this. Except, we're, we're, are you partly thinking at this time? How is everyone else not? Like, how can they just be satisfied with these platitudes? And I mean, are you shocked that more like that it took as long as it did for you to get to it? How were not people doing this before? So in Australia, we do the mining part. Now, we understand the raw materials extraction side of things, but we have no clue of what's involved with manufacture, right? And so what it felt like was the people in Europe understood one part of the section. They understood the market section, but they didn't understand manufacture and they didn't understand raw material extraction. And what it felt like was everyone was talking about another country they hadn't visited. And so what struck me was uh, it was the people I was talking to didn't intellectually understand at, or emotionally understand, sorry, at a level that I was able to understand what raw materials were and what energy was. And so what I started to think over a couple of years, I'm got by the, the edge of a very, very serious uh, blind spot that, that the people around me haven't quite understood yet how do I communicate what I'm seeing? Now, for the to remember, for the last 50 years, we've used ideology to solve all our problems, right? And so, so if we believe something is not relevant, then it's not. And so, and, and that is actually across the board. And so I started to have this sense of disquiet that not only had I actually understood something just by uh, virtue of coming from a different part of the sector, you know, you know uh, I'd come from mining. I'd actually, you know, worked, you know, worked in mines. I used to handle um, ore and think about how to extract. Like, but by virtue of doing that, you know, there's not many mining engineers. There's not many geologists that in in Europe, for example. Uh, because of that, I I could see things that the people around me could not. And then there was the question of, well, if my ideas are correct, then we've got a very very serious problem coming. And everyone else in the room is going to get caught flat-footed. So, yes, I've been driven. First was to communicate what I was seeing. But the real reason I've been driven is to create the conditions where I can go off and do genuinely useful work. Whereas all the other stuff that was being doing happened was all very nice, but was only very, very useful in a very, very small window, after which it became not so relevant. And that's what's been driving me all this time. So to catch up on, to go back in the big picture, up until now, you see patterns that other people aren't seeing. And when I think of your stuff now, it's very numerate. It's, I mean, you've gone and done, done the numbers. So I, yeah. I take it that this led to a situation, maybe you found GTK or GTK found you, in which you were able to go off and do the research and find the numbers Yeah, that to quantify the not just say this is a hunch but here the here i can back it up yeah so so it started out when i was in belgium um i was learning to learning the language and trying to actually get my head around what i needed to do when i started to propose to the people around me in belgium they they weren't really that interested they were in the recycling world and you know they, they had their thing and that and they were, they were reasonably happy with what they were doing and they they weren't trying to stop me or anything like that but but they but they just thought what i was doing was odd they didn't understand it. So a job came up in Finland, and it was mineral intelligence. 
and I was I came to the interview and I was able to actually um sit at the interview with who would later become my my management and I was able to ask them some very difficult questions some they could answer some they could not answer but we would have a discussion about what the question would mean what blew me away was they were prepared to do it they were prepared to actually openly discuss things whereas anywhere else in the world the 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 discussion would be guided to somewhere else no we don't we don't want to talk about that or they'd flatly say no no sorry that that's wrong sorry no no not having it so finland what i didn't realize at the time was finland was a place where they they prize gdk in particular prizes the ability to look at tough stuff tough problems and have the integrity to actually have an answer or at least say we're not the right people but you could go off and ask those people instead finland is a nation that actually is not afraid to look at difficult things because they've had difficult things happen in their history and they've learned the benefit of facing their problems not ignoring them so once this stuff was flagged in finland it was actually possible to have the discussion and the reason i've done what i've done and it has the flavor it is is what was missing was the numbers and what was needed to convince people was the numbers but the numbers had to be in a form that the people understood it couldn't be for example um it couldn't be abstract it had to be to get to the point where i could say we now need this number of power stations and this number of solar panels and this number of wind turbines right so it had to get to that level of precision for we could actually sort of have the discussion and so, so when i showed the basics of this to my management at the time which is you know i took the job and and those incidents turned out to be quite good quite correct um the group i work with at the moment that they're, they're certainly not perfect but they're the most enlightened group of management i've ever worked with so what i pointed out was just just from back of the na- napkin calculations uh we think we're going to service a whole lot of gigafactories in europe this was the thing say in 2018 gigafactories and battery 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 right if this is even half true like then we've got a supply mineral supply problem we are not going to be able to supply the minerals to these gigafactories and it's going to be a very very serious shortfall not not like a uh we'll have to contract by 5% no 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 not even close and so i pointed out to them that the captains of industry will turn to the geological surveys of europe but also in particular gtk because we've got battery minerals portfolio and so look why didn't you tell us guys you know, you know this was a, a blindingly obvious problem and how come you didn't see it coming and if you did why didn't you tell us and so my management thought yeah that's that's probably true hey and <laughs> so <laughs> and they said all right well, we need to look at this and so uh they said all right and and so go off and do it and we went through several rounds the first big report was reviewed by a panel of 25 people it was sort of so large it went in so many directions and a lot of it was outside gtk so we called in help and so we had like a lot of people look at it and um and, and everything and, and it's evolved since then and certain things are, are apparent we 
in Europe, we had this thing where the future is going to be X, Y, Z. It's going to be lithium ion. It's going to be battery. It's batteries. It's going to be solar panels and winter. And it's almost like a repeating mantra where it's almost like we've worn a great big track in the ground and we can't step outside the track where now what, how things are looking, the circular economy will mean we can actually get what we need from our waste products if we change what we're doing. But as the phrase, if we change what we're doing, was something they weren't ready for. And that's the purpose of my work. So when you're saying Shorefire, it's uh, if we can't supply what we think we will, a couple possibilities are that, well, if we change what we do, could mean it's the change is imposed on us or we could voluntarily choose to do it. And I presume you're talking about we, if we voluntarily choose to change what we need, change our behaviors, change our culture. So a lot of things are involuntary uh, because, you know, we won't do things until until we're forced to. Uh, but the situation I was hoping to avoid is we think we're going to do plan A, but then we then plan A stops for one reason or other, and we see the shape of the um, world in front of us, and we're not able to think up plan B very quickly or easily. And so now we look at now what? And I do believe a lot of this stuff is involuntary. Like what's happening in Germany at the moment? At the moment, a lot of their thinking and planning for the future is being undertaken because they're being forced to do it. Right. Um, now, some of the things we could do, for example, is we can make batteries out of something else. We don't have to use lithium. You could make them out of sodium or zinc or fluoride. Now, Elon Musk had a podcast recently where he actually came out and said, we're going to make batteries not using lithium with a variant of NMC532. Brilliant. I, I admire what Musk has done, actually. But he needs nickel, manganese, and cobalt to make that chemistry. And nickel and cobalt were two two metals that we had supply shortfall signatures for. So if you take everything out of the lithium column and you put it into the nickel and cobalt column, then you've got supply shortages all over again, right? So he, he hasn't actually solved the problem. He has moved the problem from one sector to another. So you can make things out of other things, but you've got to develop the supply chains to do it. Like we know how to make batteries out of um, sodium, for example, okay? But sodium is not seen as a, a big scale-up action yet. So why would we do that when we've got lithium? Because yeah, having the idea of how to do the chemistry is one thing, but, you, but you've got to actually sort of develop the value chain to manufacture. Like, where do we get the sodium from? And how do we put it into a useful form? And how do we assemble that battery? And, then, and the batteries, once they're built, how do we integrate them into our existing technology? All of that has to be thought through, and it will take years. And so what I'm hoping is we will voluntarily look at these parallel systems now so we have options of what to manage later. So you're bringing forth, you're saying here are the places where the problems are going to be. These are the shortfalls. These are the things that we'll have to do. You're not creating a plan to do it, I don't think, just yet. But you're showing a plan has to address these things. These are the numbers. You can't just look away or hope these things aren't there. So the first generation was to do that. Um, and yes, I'm actually showing like where where are the sore points? Where, where are the bottlenecks and everything? 
I have been asked to rewrite the circular economy or redevelop the circular economy in context of this work, as in fossil fuel steps out and our ability to um, make the, the, the next step will be seriously limited by what minerals are available. All right. And so the first document has actually been written and will be published at the end of this month on what that might look like. And so so th this is the next generation. I don't want to be the guy shouting from the rooftops, the end is nigh. Um, I want to say, here's the problem, but then here's the solution. I want to be the solutions guy. So the next generation of work for me is to start looking at solutions in context of this work. So one of the things that you wrote or I heard you say, uh, no, in the thing, in the GTK thing, which hopefully people have, have watched by now, uh, it says that, as you put it, different, we may need a different social contract and a radical system of government change. Mm -hmm. Right. So is, is that what's coming up? Is that what you're talking about? Is, is you're talking about next? Right. So I'm talking about, the, uh, uh, what are the, how might we organize this? Like, what might industry look like in a post fossil fuel world? How might we society organize itself around that? The things I said there sound very challenging. And you say, well, come on, man, you're, a, you're, you're, a, you're part of a geological survey. You've got no business using the word social or, or contract. Snap out of it. Uh, but the implications of what I've put together is, well, we're heavily dependent on fossil fuels now. Fossil fuels, we're, we're, we're phasing them out one way or another. But our plan to replace those fossil fuels also isn't going to work. So we're moving into a low energy world. And what will that mean is available products on the market of things like electric vehicles, wind turbines and solar panels are going to be harder to procure at any level soon. Like when we all sort of, you know, get serious about this. So we're stepping into a low energy future. Now from a biological organism point of view, the energy input it into a system defines how big that system is and how complex that system is. Contract the energy and you must contract the size and complexity of the system. So if our society is about to go into a low energy future, whether we like it or not, we will have to contract in footprint and we will have to contract in, in, in complexity. At the moment, we take that complexity for granted. So the implications of that is our society will have to operate fundamentally differently to what we do now. And there's a whole discussion of what, what that might look like. You could argue I'm not the best person to describe what that looks like because I'm, I'm doing the, um, the industry stuff, the, the physical, um, elements around that. And someone else should step in and look at the social stuff just as someone else should step in and look at the environmental interaction, um, section. So I'm thinking in terms of if society is to look like look very different, what are the boundary conditions and what will we probably end up doing? Put this in context, when I was in Australia, I was for a very brief time part of a group called the State Emergency Service or the SES. And we were a volunteer group that every time there was a, a storm or, you know, there was, there was, there was, you know, a flood or a fire, we would then they should go out and help the people on the ground. So, so this is emergency management. Usually some sort of large natural disaster is what we were trained for. Okay. So I'm sort of thinking in terms of if there was an emergency, like something just doesn't work very well or goes wrong, how would society respond? And the things like instead of actually all, all of us driving 
individual personal cars, we'll all start uh, um, doing communal transport like buses. Car sharing will, okay, we, we could probably look at that, but buses uh, are going to be much more effective in moving people around. Uh, you know, this is what happened in Cuba, for example, um, in, in the 90s. So, so, all right, we're going to go to communal transport. Uh, so buses, trams, trains, metros, all of that will become much more important. The truck network to deliver stuff all over, you know, uh, the, the network is also now very important. But now we're going to get to it. Everything we do is going to be much more expensive or much more difficult. So there'll be less quantity of actions, but everything we do will be higher quality. Higher quality in all things. So we have to really think about, do we need that transport? Do we need that uh, um, product? At, at the moment, for example, I buy books off Amazon uh, and I, I, I click on the website and uh, pay my bill and then this box arrives a few days later. It's, it's great. Right? Will we be able to do that? Probably not. You know, so what's called a luxury for entertainment and what's actually a genuinely uh, important action or product that society will need. So there's going to be a reordering priorities. I think you're talking about a rational approach that I don't see actually happening. I think that if people can't, I mean, it, it could happen that way and it'd be nice if things happen that way. But I think more likely is some, is a few people will say, look, I got to get mine. You can't, and, and I'll do what I, it takes to protect this, this, and there'll be fights and wars and things like that. I think that's a much more likely scenario. Yeah. So societies, I, I see society splitting into four separate groups in terms of how they're going to respond to this. And yes, uh, a lot of people will fall into that paradigm, but um, there'll come a point when that doesn't work very well anymore. And if people think this is just a temporary thing, you know, it's just a temporary glitch and uh, we just have to sort of, you know, harden up and tighten our belt and everyone for themselves until it's fixed uh, and it will all be fixed later. All right. You could, you could argue that uh, the ethics of it isn't very nice for me, but, but you could argue that that's an approach. But once people realize that this is actually a permanent change, right, and then you go, well, okay, well, now what? And so the new system that has to come from that if we don't work together, then it don't get done. Poor English there, but, but that's that's um, Cockney slang, I suppose you call it. But, <laughs> but if 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 we don't actually come together and, and and start doing things together, then a lot of the things that we actually will need uh, is, is going to be very very difficult to arrange. So we've got to collectively understand. The person next to you is actually part of your solution for your long-term, uh, long-term survival. As opposed to the person next to you is someone I can take stuff from. That's the evolution. Well, that's the desired evolution. I mean, I, I would like to see that happen. Yeah. I, I don't, I mean, another possibility. Here's a scenario that seems to me plausible. I keep looking at the Tigris and Euphrates river, mm -hmm. rivers that, that, to, I think that they don't run dry, but they are pretty well used. And they go through Turkey, Syria, and Iraq. Mm -hmm. And the upstream ones could just say, we're going to take this water. Yep, they could. And the downstream ones would probably invade or they'd, you know, there'd be some fight over this. Mm -hmm. And I see the fight happening as more likely 
Right, by the way, I got to preface this. This is what drives me to do what I do is to not have things like this happen. But I think the, it's much more likely that one of them would say, well, look, I know you want it, but we got it. And so tough luck. And the other one says, well, here we come. We're going to go get it. And then that's going to escalate and become a much bigger fight. And it would lead to a, the stable equilibrium of a much, much smaller human population, possibly zero. Uh, but what you're talking about saying, oh, the person next to me can be someone I, co I can cooperate with, with rather than compete with. I don't see that happening. How does that happen? What's the mechanism that, that? Okay. So, so this is where you do it. This is where like I did like, I like a game theory thought experiment. This is how I came up with the four different basic groups. And so, right, group one thinks this. Okay, roll the clock forward, how things will go. Now, then you've got the group uh, that I call the Vikings or the Raiders. Yeah, let's go and take stuff. Okay, that works for a short period of time. But what happens when there's nothing else to take? Or your ability to go and take, you've got to range further and further afield, doesn't work anymore. Or the people you try and go and take stuff up communicate with other people that you've raided, and they start to cooperate together, and suddenly you're facing more people than you can actually take stuff from, and they're going to shoot you on sight. Right? So what I was saying is you might take stuff for a short period of time, but when it becomes apparent that no one's making any new stuff and there's no more stuff coming in to the supermarket, the supply chains are broken down. Now what? And so what the Vikings will do is they'll educate everyone else the benefit of thinking differently, right? And the Vikings will very quickly apparent, realize that their solution is not sustainable very long. And they will force everyone around them to start banding together for their own survival, and they will, which out of that will start cooperation. And so I believe we'll see some very human behavior. Yeah, that's, that's, that's probably true. Uh, but as, as we sort of get into it and the reality starts to impose, our normal ways of problem solving won't work. Now what? And so all four groups will actually have to go, huh, I suppose we should, uh, evolve what we're doing then. Right. 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 Well, plan A didn't work, did it? Uh, yeah. Hmm, yeah. And so. The ability to take stuff from people only works if you can keep taking stuff from people. Which, if you know, your average supermarket, for example, has only uh, two or three days of food in it. You know, especially the perishable stuff. And if it's not being restocked, now what? So you know, you know that mo uh, book, "Who Moved My Cheese?" Uh, it's a uh, I know of it. Yeah, yeah. So it's these two mice in a maze. Uh, they get cheese every day in the same spot, and then one day the cheese stops coming. Now what? One mouse sits down and goes, yep, I'm just going to wait for some more cheese to appear. The other mouse goes off exploring. Uh, it's, it's the difference in those two mentalities. So we are talking about quite a different... Uh, uh, we're seeing already at a nation-state scale uh, this idea of predation. What can I take from you for my benefit? Right. But if it came to the point where, well, that's only possible while more stuff is still being made, then we've got to completely change how we make it then. So what you were saying before that there's different types of people, different ways of different things that have to be done right now. You're doing one of them. Another one is how would 
like a, a counterpart of yours would be how do we make that transition socially, governmentally? Did I read that right? Yeah. Is there anyone working in that area? Not that I know of. Uh, the person who comes closest is Nate Hagens. And what he's looking at is understanding why people make the choices they're making. I, no, no I, I suppose you could say that there is a lot of people working on the social contract. Like It's a massive field, so it's disingenuous to say that there's no one working on this. Um, I haven't actually seen anyone put it together, uh, though. What I would say from an energy point of view is, is our society will be more decentralized than what it is now. So if we're much more decentralized, uh, where at the moment our nation states are actually put together and have optimized with the idea of fossil fuel supporters. If we move into a low energy system, that complex system will have to shrink in size. And what I think will happen is the city council, the shire council, Level who owns all the hospitals and all the waste transfer stations and uh, you know uh, all the schools and the hospitals. That's the level of government that actually might do something useful, and so the authority might pass from the federal government to the local shire council level. And the federal government, its purpose is to transfer information and and um, try and hold everyone together that way. Uh, I haven't seen anyone. Uh, well, no, I've seen lots of people sort of try and get their arms around this problem. I haven't seen anyone put it together in a way that talks to my work directly. And what will probably happen is someone will hear me say something like that and they'll come and find me and, and uh, disabuse me of that notion. <laughs> <laughs> so I got to tell you about what, I, what I'm working on. I, I don't know how much of it you know, but something motivating me, like I'll look at some of your presentation. You're saying, um, one thing I saw was you were talking about energy consumption in Spain and how to match that with the supply. And we need, you know, and I look at it and I think that supply, that demand is way more than necessary. It can be much, much less. Yeah, there you go. That's, that's one thing we need to do. And why are we, what's driving that? Not just, I, I'm not just curious, like what's driving it. Why do people use so much and how much less can we use? Because people have lived in where Spain is now for 100,000 years, something like that? It's, it's an enormous long time. So what's happened is we use more and more because we can. It really is as simple as that. We've we've had the stuff and we've been able to use it and off we go. Right? So um, energy and technology has allowed us to develop a society that's energy that's quite wasteful on all fronts. Like how much food do we waste? Uh, that, that That's a big one. But it also allows us to live in such concentrated population centers we call cities. Take away energy in those systems, those cities will have to relocate and break up. So now we've got the problem of um, now we've got the problem of we've got this massive population, this this massive human population that wants to to live and operate like it always has, and. Like a problem correctly stated is half solved. What has been harvested out of the environment far exceeds what is sustainable in a uh, in, the, in the in the renewable resource sector, right? And and that and that's the that's the problem. Um, yeah, and so so we actually don't have the um, uh, we, we we haven't really sort of thought through what it is we will do. 
you know, uh, how could we actually reduce? We could reduce our footprint massively. Like, like, you know, the amount of energy we waste. Plastic's a big one. Like, you go down this, you go down to the shopping mall and you buy, you buy products and they're wrapped in plastic and the plastic gets ripped off and thrown away. Uh, you know, and, and we do that to say it's new. You know, the, the whole mentality behind that, like most of that plastic goes into the sea. Well, not, not most, about half, I think it is, but, but we're, we're putting in so much plastic into the sea that when they did a study, I think it was 2010, uh, for every foot of coastline, there was one five liter bag, a shopping bag of, of plastic waste. And by 2025, yeah. it'll be twice that. Ah. You're going to make, you're going to make me cry. Well, so, yeah. so at my end is, I, I don't just ask like how much more, how much less can we, it, now reducing waste, there's a, a matter of efficiency. But efficiency tends to get used to increase the system. So there's also changing our values to where we don't yeah. want those things in the first place. And that's what, I mean, you know, I challenged myself 10 years ago. I challenged myself to see if I could go without packaged food for a week. And I really thought it was going to make my life worse because I live in New York, right? It's like we bring food from all over the world. It's going to be packaged and all these people trained to be chefs their whole lives to to serve great food. Why would I not? avail myself. And then to my surprise, I found that after a period of learning to cook, I liked much better when I cooked. It was faster, more convenient and cheaper and uh, more delicious, more healthy. And it's, it led me down this whole path of like, wait a minute. It's not just a matter of reducing waste. It's changing the values to, to what is the value? What is this thing bringing me in the first place. Yeah. And it's led to where now you probably, you might've seen on my page that um, last summer, I guess uh, two years ago, I was curious, like what would happen if I disconnected my apartment from the electric grid? Just, I went to the circuit and like, just t- disconnect it for 24 hours. Cause you know, if, if you, uh, if I hold my breath, I can hold my breath, but, and not breathe, but then I have to like breathe extra when I, when I start breathing again. And I wonder if that would happen. And it turned out it didn't. I went 24 hours. No big deal. I just with my girlfriend at the time, we rode our bikes down to Brooklyn and had a good time. And then the following year, which was last summer, I thought, I wonder if I could make it a month that way. And I'd, in that time, I'd bought a couple cheap solar panel, a cheap solar panel off of Craigslist used. I'm only going to get stuff used. And can you guess how long I made it? My goal was a month. I didn't know how long. I, I had no idea how I could make it past more than. I mean, I'd done 24 hours. I didn't know how I could make it past two or three days. Yeah, that's the challenge. So I'm still going in my 10th month. Like I know, no one is more surprised than I am that I can make it this long. And now I work nearby so I can plug my computer in there, but my home has been disconnected from the grid for all this time. Now, my point here is not this is some... um experiment that was well planned or anything. In fact, the opposite. It was just like, I wonder if I can do this. And just, it tells me that if the first try can get this far. Yeah. So, so what you're actually sort of uh, changing, uh, you're changing your expectations of what you want and what you need. Um, but a lot of our supporting systems, um, a lot of our supporting systems, are, um, are dependent on that we become very dependent upon that that, that that say five six hundred years ago that we took care of ourselves 
And so I can see society evolving into a point where we do more for ourselves and we become less dependent on external systems on the other side of the planet. Um, you know, simply let the clothes you're wearing, you probably didn't make yourself. And you probably didn't uh, grow your own food, although you possibly could. You know, most of us, it doesn't occur to us to do that. We don't even have the skills to do that anymore. And so, um, yeah, this to me is so, yeah, to me, this is where I've gone to change to, to look at is not change values in my view, but restore values because we all live sustainably for a couple hundred thousand years. Yeah. And anyway, I'm, I'm trying to put what I do on your radar screen because I feel like it's a big missing gap of, and I think most people look at using less energy as necessarily going to be deprivation and sacrifice. And my experience, that was certainly my expectation. And each time I've done something, actually, I, exactly what I thought I would get less of, I'm actually getting more of. And there's, you know, I'm being very precise there for a reason, because it's like, if you, if I expect I'm going to lose a certain amount or a certain number of things, it's actually what I get more of. So time with family and, and, um, mm-hmm. income, and so, uh, yeah. So we're we're evolving into a society that values each other instead of material things. Now that's very laudable, but at the moment, where do we get our energy from that heats our homes and lights our buildings, powers our computers? Where do we get our food from? Where do we get our clothes from? Right. And so this is all the stuff that happens in the background that will allow uh, that to happen. And so, yeah, and how much less of it. How much more joy is there in getting, in using less and less and less of it? So, yes, as long as it lasts, because, because a lot of the stuff we buy has been designed to wear out. Like, for example, can you live the way you are living for the next five years? In five years' time, oh, yeah. you, you said that, that that that. So, at what point do you got to start replacing this stuff? And and that's when you will then come back to society in its current form, and then and so on. Um, but I think. Where we get our raw materials from and what we do with them has got to be integrated into our social contracts somehow. And we will value our energy and our raw materials much, much more highly than we do now. We might, we might even start managing like how we manage our money <laughs> very carefully. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think we have to drive that much more than hope that it will happen. That's, yeah. Well, uh, I, well, I'm of the opinion people won't do it willingly. Because it's it's like we're addicted uh, to how things are at the moment. Like we don't want to. I would say more than. It's, yeah. I would say it's more than like addicted. Yeah. I would say it's addicted. Yeah. So so people aren't going to want to give up their Starbucks uh, and, and things like that. And and so, but what will happen is I think our operating environment will have to change, and then in that change, people have to understand why it's changing, and then understand that they themselves also have to change. Yeah, and part of what I want to throw in there is is actually get to change. Hmm. Like when I try to instill this mindset shift where people feel go from feeling like I have to that to expect that acting more sustainably, living more sustainably is going to be deprivation and sacrifice to switch to recognizing that it's actually going to be a restoration of values that they're going to prefer. Even if before they do it, I mean in the same way that an addict when someone's addicted, they've the thing that they're addicted to feels to them like warm and comforting, and giving it up sounds like a terrible idea. Even though anyone outside is like you're addicted, and it's ruining your life. 
to them it feels warm and comforting and supportive. But once they're rid of it, then... They don't even know that. That's what I say. Most people don't even understand that. If you were to suggest that, it's it's like uh, telling a crack addict that they've got a... um, uh, telling a cracked addict that it's got to kick the habit. Oh, no, 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 that can't happen. Yeah, there's a fear there. So anyway, so these these are the things to actually sort of work on. I can look at the edge and everything, but I I, I really think I need a counterpart in the social sciences area to actually sort of flesh this out, to actually get something practical done here. Yeah, I would suggest not social sciences so much as leadership. The distinction for me is... One studies things, the other does things. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, uh, there's a third component where we actually need to, uh, have a, uh, someone who comes in and actually can, uh, help us, uh, understand what it will be required to interact with the environment. And at the moment, like we, 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 we bang on about carbon, but to me, uh, the real problem is species die off, the ecological, um, crisis that's unfolding, you know, the number of species becoming extinct each day, like that. land degradation, oceans acidification. Um, two sectors have actually made this happen. One's industry, but the other is food generation. And so we've, we've really got to come to terms with that we've got to change. You know, when I think of all the different issues of, of I mean, the species lost and there's um, desertification and all these different things, and to me it all comes back to our behavior, which all comes back to our beliefs and our culture. All those things seem to me manifestations of those things, which all draw me back to leadership. Yeah, okay. But you also need an alternative that works for for people, for that leadership to be effective. Yeah, that's what leaders do. Although in this case, it has to be not, it's not just like how to win a basketball game where, you know, grit and courage might do it, but we also have to be humble to the science, to nature. I think that's what you're saying. So yeah, but everything has to be put on the table at the same time and optimized together. And at the moment, industry is optimized without really thinking about the environment. Um, and finance is operated and, and optimized in, according to its own rules and doesn't think about anyone else and, and so on. And so we've, we've, our society has got to become more systems oriented and things like biophysical limitations need to be recognized and ecological reality needs to be part of our thinking, which it's not. Oh, yeah. Speaking of... Speaking of that view, you wrote clearly that limits to growth make sense. Let me see. I I copied it. The basic concepts of how a global system works as described by the Limits to Growth Project are correct, which I agree with. And one of the things I try to do is to find criticism of limits to growth that's valid because all the criticisms I come across seem very ideological and... I keep concluding that it seems pretty um, accurate, effective. How, what does limits to growth mean to you? Was it was it as important a starting point? I mean, for me, it was a big starting point. Um, I came across limits to growth when I was already on the journey. I, I, I had already found problems in the mining industry, and I came across limits to growth. And what I find is we first start out in one sector, and we look at that sector only. And uh, – I was in the mining industry and I was looking at concepts like peak oil in the beginning. And um, I used to have debates with some guys I went to school with on the internet and, and about stuff. And, and they had a very different viewpoint, but they were all economists and lawyers. 
right? And says they saw the world as a market phenomenon and they saw hyperinflation as the only problem. That if, if you're not talking about hyperinflation, then, then really, you know, you, you've missed the boat. And I try and tell them about peak oil. And like someone else will say, oh, no, 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 climate change. That, that's the only problem we need to be talking about. And so what I realized and what those guys really sort of helped me understand was that there are multiple problems of a macro scale in front of us and they actually interact in a systems context that most people only understand one or two at a time. And that's the change. Right. And so, um, yeah, so this is what must change sort of, sort of, uh, going forward that, that we have to recognize that there's more than one. I'm going to uninstall teams if it keeps doing that. Um, yeah, that, um, no, it's telegram. I'm going to uninstall telegram if it keeps doing that. Yeah. So yeah, this is the evolution that we're actually looking at. So when you talk about th- your first point was, I see things as a system and examine them accordingly. Yeah. It, when I read that, I thought my, my first, one of my first thoughts is limits to growth. Is that, is it your? So, okay. So, so the idea of the system, uh, that came later. I was looking at like one part of the system and I uh, took up a field called geometallurgy, which is like a systems approach to mining. If we were to connect geology and mineralogy to metallurgy and mineral processing, what would happen? And that's what geometallurgy became. And that's actually what my professorship is. And so professionally, I started to look at things as systems. I came across limits to growth and I said, brilliant. And I, I didn't really sort of connect the dots, which is ironic, uh, when I first looked at it. Uh, it wasn't until later when I actually started to describe this to someone else that I found systems was a very effective way of describing it. And then I started using the limits to growth. This was like 2017, I suppose. I started using the limits to growth report to explain what's happening to us. They did this system. They found this basic pattern and we're following that basic pattern perfectly, which means uh, this is actually what's going to happen um, in the next five to 10 years. And so limits to growth was probably a gateway in terms of understanding what's happening in a way where I can describe it to someone else and also understanding what possible solutions might look like. So, yes, it was very important. Um, yeah, but I didn't put it together. It wasn't the starting point that it should have been. <laughs> so. Okay. And have you come across – I'm sure you've come across a lot of criticism of it. But yeah. in my case, the criticism is always of these little details that miss the point. And it's almost as if they wanted to – they knew the criticism before they found – it just seemed ideologically driven. So – And invalid. Renew, I should read the writings of Plato – or Socrates or Aristotle, the ancient Greeks had this idea that a debate was a way to learn things, right? What we are now doing in the modern world, though, is when we engage in these debates, it's really to indoctrinate. It's a form of combat. I will put my ideology forward and I will defend it, and then others will come and try and destroy that ideology, and the word is destroy. We're here to indoctrinate and destroy, not learn from each other. So when you actually sort of see these criticisms against limits to growth, it's almost always taken out of context where they don't actually understand the true um, outcomes 
of of what's there, and and in an ideological kind of way, they um, it, it, it's almost like in a bad faith kind of way they're they're determined to miss the point, and because we interact this way, if we were to have a debate, then whoever I'm debating, either the person I'm debating loses their emotional world security worldview, or I've got to lose my emotional security worldview. And there is no middle ground. And and that's that's why there's so much hate and anger in the world today, because this is how we do things. And no one actually wants to know. Like, like When you talk about limits to growth, the people who are actually using it in a positive context are already thinking in terms of, like, what the hell do we do? The people who are seeing it for the first time tend to fight it because they don't want to know. They want to stay. Uh, they want things to stay the same, and they don't want to hear that things are going to change. And it, it's very sad, but that, that's that's what I sort of see happening. And this is one of the things that has to change if we're to stand a snowball's chance in hell of actually meeting the incoming challenges. Yeah, I want to – we got to wrap up. Uh, but I want to remind people to watch the video. In this conversation with you, I was really curious to meet you and learn what was driving a lot of the research. But we didn't talk about the research that much. And I want to tell people again, go to the videos that I linked to at – um, at GTK site for that'll give the highlights of can you remind me there's something that just came out or is about to come out and then there's the new fr- fr- frontier also that will be hopefully people listening to this sometime in the future can also find that too okay so for the past year I've had two very large papers in published in a peer-reviewed journal and uh, we're now settled on a journal and that's now in the process of being peer-reviewed uh, it's been peer reviewed internally and it's going to go out to external peer review and then it'll be, it's about to be released. This is the full work, both studies, all calculations. And it's, it's going to be like 150 pages and 80 tables of data. So that's coming. Um, and at which point then we can start having a different kind of conversation and I hopefully won't be required to defend my work as often as I'm doing. The new frontier is people have been discussing uh, my work and when I'm presenting it to, to to my face, people like the work and they agree and no one's pushing back to my face. So the monkeys on Twitter are throwing poo, but they never do it to my face. And then what that means is, is, is if it's all about the numbers, here are my numbers, what are yours? So the, one of the things everyone has asked me is, could you please fix it? All right, you, you've made your point, right? And we accept that there's a problem. What do we do? Like, h- how do we actually meet this this problem? And so, a series of ideas have started to come together. That you know, like, what steps might we look at to actually meet these sort of challenges? And that's this, the I've recently uh, written a document that's going out to the BSB policy series for the Baltic Sea governments. That if I was to rewrite and reinvent the circular economy in context of the outcomes of my work, what would that look like? And so this is what I believe is the new frontier. Like, how do we proceed? What do we do? Where do we go? Do I detect in you um, a sound of enthusiasm of, of getting to dig into something that you've been wanting to dig into? So, yes, I found that the uh, work that just done, it really gets in the way of things. Like, um, I, I released this work, what, 18 months ago. 
And since then, I presented it 160 times. Uh, and each time I present it, it gets stronger and there's, there's more confidence involved. And, and it's good to hear people, what they sort of see to, to make sure, you know, it's still real and, and, and valid. But I would like to evolve to actually start working on the solution space and instead of pointing out what the problem is. Uh, I don't want to be the guy standing on the corner with a big cardboard uh, uh, um, uh, sign saying the end is nigh. Uh, I said, well, here's a problem. And then I said, well, here's a solution set that we could look at. But that solution set wouldn't be able to exist until people understand the problem. And that's why I've worked. I first worked in the oil industry first, and then I worked in the green transition second. And then there is the well evolution of the industrial set third. Will you be sure to come back here and share when the new stuff is ready? Yeah, sure. Long, long before it goes for publication. I want the inside stuff. Yeah, the, in, the, the inside <laughs> skinny. Okay. <laughs> the inside skinny. Yeah, sure. Yeah, or the previews. <laughs> I guess maybe not the very first because you say it, gets, it improves with each time you give it. So yeah. maybe not the very first time. So yeah, but the first documentation that's actually published at the end of March, uh, which is, you know, you know, a couple of weeks away. Uh, that's going to go out to all governments and it's a policy briefing and that's going to start a bar fight because you know, you're, I'm openly saying things like, you know, society's got to change how it's doing things and, uh, and, uh, we've, we've got to see things differently. And that's, that's generally the sort of thing you get burned at the stake for. And so, well, you know, it's happened before and I imagine it'll happen again, but every report I do has the capacity to be very unpopular and, it, and there's a risk. So each work I do could be the last work I do. And that, that, that's, that's, that's how my career is evolving. And if that's the case, uh, I shall retire from the spotlight and I'll go and do something else. That's not going to mean I'm not going to stop though. Can't live in fear. I concur. Maybe that's a good place to close. Uh, anything I didn't think to ask or, uh, anything to close with? I think that, um, we are both the problem and the solution in how we see things, right? So society to sees the problems as they really are and they see themselves as they really are, then we can actually make a plan. Until we do that, um, we're actually holding up any sort of sensible evolution. Well, Simon Michaud, thank you very much. You're welcome. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.